Hi everyone, welcome to the season finale of Fandoms, Culture, and Perhaps a Few Murders. I am Al the Barbarian. With me is Feline, the Rogue. Yar. And Spade the Monk. Be one with yourself. It seems like connected universes are all the rage in media today, with the success of the Conjuring universe and of course the MCU. There are those who have tried to get in on it to mix reactions. The DCEU, Godzilla Kong, the Fast franchise, Cloverfield, to name a few. But money is to be made. And because of that success, many have expanded as Shrek has Puss in Boots, Buffy had Angel, Rocky has Creed, Alan Wake has Control, the list goes on. In today's episode, we will talk about a few that have been built well, be it through expansion of lore, improvement or strengthening of its universe or the setting of the building blocks of a world we as fans can't wait to get back in and get more of. All right. The universe I chose was the John Wicks one because it's just so dope. So not only has the, the universe that John Wick lives in set up a whole underground assassin universe with its own currency rules that everyone respects and understands to an umpteenth level, it also has allegories to Greek mythology. With the most obvious to start with, because he's one of the first people we really sit there and encounter and know as a character, gets a like, is Sharon, who also could be sit there and mixed with Chiron, the one who ferries the dead. And he sits there and is the concierge and the intake to the Continental. The Continental is an established sanctuary, neutral zone for the assassins in this world. The currency used with both the underworld and the Continental is the large coin. So when you go to see the Farrier of the Dead, you drop off drachmas, which are coins that are given to you or are supposed to be buried with you when you die. And it's the similar type currency in this underworld. It's just a big old gold coin with an undeterminable uh, set of wealth to. And when you encounter John Wick and he breaks open that cement block under his basement and he opens it up, like he has clearly done enough work to <laughs> put that shit in quotation marks for his job to amass a large amount. And that case is clearly too leveled. So if the, if the second level duplicates that first level, all those gold coins, he not only was so good at his job, he did it so often that he has enough gold coins to sit there and probably last him a lifetime considering what the currency exchange seems to be with that business. Now, going back to the Greek mythology thing, we'd have Winston, who's the keeper and runner of the Continental. We'd see him as Zeus, keeper of Olympus and order itself. Vigo could be a representative of the God of War Ares. The female assassin, Miss Perkins, who decided that the money was good enough to sit there and break the continental rules for could be Artemis, goddess of the hunt. Charlie, the cleaner at John's house, and also when they have to clean up Miss Perkins. As Hephaestus, god of blacksmithing and, of course, cleaner of crime scenes. Vigo's son would be uh, Deimos. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. Son of Ares, who would also be afraid of war. Willem Dafoe would be Hades, of course, the god of death. And this whole movie, essentially, is the boogeyman takes out the gods. With his birth or resurrection, how you want to call it, being him swinging that hammer into the cement and reopening his old life. Now, to the world building of the actual John Wick universe itself. His room at the Continental, the doctor that patches him up, the sommelier who helps him choose his utensils, and again in quotation marks, for the party, again quotation marks, that he's going to, the tailors who make him bulletproof suits, both casual and <laughs> formal and informal. 
the archivist who gives them access to building plans. The whole world that us normies have no idea exists, all paid for with this single coin currency in their world. They have such a huge layer of respect for the rules that they all live by that even during a fight between two assassins having them accidentally or strategically, if you want to see it a different way, fall through a window of the continental, they immediately stop and then buy each other drinks because business is illegal in the continental grounds. It is not something that's violated. The Continental is clearly an exclusive hotel chain, and again, I use that with quotation marks, with not only a holding in the United States, but also in Rome. And you can only assume in other places internationally as well. There's clearly the places where the assassins get trained that will be covered by the ballerina. Is it going to be a movie or a TV show? A movie. Oh, so it's going to be a movie, and that was the one where it's run by Angelica Houston, right? Yeah. So she runs the ballerina company. Let's be real. If there's one assassination trading company, there's going to be multiples around the world. There is such a huge world, both implied and as well as in other aspects shown in this film that I honestly think is so well done. It has me in awe. Not to mention the filming style, the dedication of all the actors in all of the John Wick films. I think it's just awesome. And I love this universe and I would watch it all over again and and more movies involved in it. I love it. We know that the world will be expanded in the upcoming ballerina movie and also the Continental series is coming to Peacock focusing on a younger Winston. So they're just further expanding upon the background of the Continental and of that character. All of it is just so dope. And I want to say that the sommelier scene is like really one of my favorites. How they're talking back and forth. The excitement in the sommelier. The appreciation of how like John Wick is talking to them. Because I'm sure there's going to be assassins who won't be as eloquent to him as John was in that film. Because you know there's going to be assassins of all kinds. Brutish, you know, silent, whatever. And they're not all going to be proper with the lingo with him because he, you clearly he was appreciative of the whole thing. He was describing exactly what he was looking for. Like, it was great. That whole scene was just so funny. The look on his face, wow, just so funny. <laughs> it's like they spoke as if there was recordings around. It was almost in code. And at the same time, there is a kind of odd juxtaposition for Wick simply because his reputation precedes him in that world. He is the one you send to kill the boogeyman, they say. And yet, his reputation being known as an elite killer of killers, he's still, demeanor-wise, very nice, very centered, and formal with the people who he interacts with who are outfitting him for his various missions. Thinking about the scene, it's like they're talking in a very formal way, as like connoisseurs of death. Yeah, that's right. Like they knew exactly what they were talking about and they were enjoying having the lingo together because they both had the same experience. The Somalia, I'm pretty sure it's dangerous to know that much about guns. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. And you know, dessert. Yeah. <laughs> His face and he said that it was the best. It was like, oh yes, mm, let's go. <laughs> I love this so good. As a Trekkie, of course, I'm going to talk about Star Trek. Back in the 1960s, Gene Roddenberry started the original series, which included one of the first multiracial casts ever on television. Set in the 23rd century, it was followed by the animated series and six motion pictures. The next generation introduced a new crew set 100 years later and continued in four films. Deep Space Nine and Voyager take place in the same time frame as The Next Generation. 
Enterprise was a prequel series set 100 years before the original series. Then came Discovery set 10 years before the original series until the crew jumps to the 32nd century. It spun off Strange New Worlds and also set in Discovery's 10-year time period before the original series. Prodigy is set five years after Voyager returned to Earth in 2383. Lower Decks is set in the late 24th century in 2380. Short Treks takes place during Discovery and before Picard. Picard takes place 20 years after the last Next Generation film, Nemesis. It is from that point that the prime timeline of now takes off. Picard was working to get a fleet of ships to help rescue the world's of the Romulan star empire that were in the blast radius of a coming supernova due to rogue synths destroying the fleet yards and coinciding events like Picard resigning due to Starfleet not pursuing the Romulan evacuation and Spock attempting to save their planet using red matter to make a black hole to swallow the anomaly. The majority of Romulans, including thousands of lives lost on Mars, created the Kelvin timeline of the reboot trilogy of films. In the world of Star Trek, it started around the early 22nd century where humanity eliminated most if not all poverty, disease, hunger, and cruelty. Racism, sexism, and money are things of the past. People are mostly peaceful and are there to spread out into the stars and meet with new citizens, share new technologies, and is truly a utopian society. Now, the way that the show was initially created I'm pretty sure Roddenberry didn't know that his universe was going to expand so much and get so in-depth and have such a huge frame. But at the same time, the showrunners during the Next Generation Voyager and Deep Space Nine eras had the ongoing story of the Dominion War between the Changelings and the Federation. But they kept it serialized to Deep Space Nine mainly. Voyager would get in on that just through various communiques that they got while they were still in the Alpha Quadrant on the way back to their side of the universe. And the Next Generation films didn't reference it at all other than in maybe passing sentences. But now we have that conflict rearing its head with the Next Generation cast now in Picard's Season 3. Now, at the time that they were trying to keep all these things kind of just segmented, it's because they didn't want to make it too confusing or do too much crossover in order to not throw off fans or scare them away. How odd that is now, seeing as almost all fan bases kind of want a connected universe of anything. Other things that they did was create brand new races that are cosplayed, such as the Cardassians, of course, the Klingons with their own language. You can say the same thing for Tolkien's universe with this franchise's speaking Elvish. I love the Star Trek universe. Absolutely. The whole utopian thing and them trying to sit there and bring all the other worlds together is just is dope. I'm a Star Trek fan too. I'm more of a Star Trek fan than I am a Star Wars fan. But I love the universe. I love everything that's going on. I want more of it. I don't care. I'm not the type of judgmental type. Well, this isn't continuity. With it. I don't care. Everything that's going on, all the stories, all of it. Bring it. Just give it to me. And I can't wait for more. And I want more. I want, what is it? Section 31? I yeah. want section 31. I want it all. I want it more. 
I don't care. <laughs> I love this universe. It is great. It really was like an inspiration to generations for people who wanted to go to NASA, wanted to sit there, become an engineer, who saw certain characters. It's like, yo, Doc McCoy is dope. His sarcastic is dope. I'm going to be a doctor. Ruh. Doc's a black woman in space right now, seen as an equal. I want this. Michelle Nichols sat there and recruited women to help recruit black women for NASA. She's killing it. That bit of sci-fi created generations of geeks and even applying it to today and having people come in even with um was it prodigy yeah yeah but prodigy sitting there bringing kids into it like star wars hasn't been trying to bring kids into it with the way it's set up too like yeah for the clone wars cartoon series right they sat there and created a whole new character ashoka that is like an online darling both of these franchises sit there and created opened worlds for nerds and geeks and fellow weebs alike (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to to want to sit there and be in the sciences because it's fucking dope. They don't have weapons to hurt nobody. They have weapons to defend themselves because they're not naive and they have a code that they try to live by. Mm-hmm. Like if a, if a planet doesn't have space travel already set up, we're not going to touch them. We're not going to try to make contact or anything like that, but we will explore and try to look at planets. And it really is about like information and education. The whole show was about learning more, trying to find more info and bringing people together. Like that's, that's an awesome fucking world to set up for. Even metaphorically, it gives people hope. I love Star Trek. (laughs) I will say that it's so impressive, just even conceptually, even to fathom creating a language from scratch. I mean, I'm sure there's influences that it took. But any medium that can make a whole entire language that people can actually learn and be fluent in and actually use as a functional language to really communicate. There are some colleges that taught Klingon as an elective. Which is insane because so few people are even fluent properly in their own native language. Like, (laughs) you can talk, right? It's not the same, but to learn... A fictional language. To learn any language is crazy, but especially coming up with one. Where do you even begin? Right. I have no idea. You Generally, it's always taking one base language and then messing with vowels and sounds and such. But I mean, it like, gets complicated, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, for like little particle words like it, the, what the fuck do you come up with for that? Like, I don't even know how to define that, let alone create a new term for it and make it flow in a language in a seamless way people have gotten married in klingon yo for real and it's like it's a very guttural language like german or or korean with a lot of the yeah exactly and a lot of other languages out there that that sit there and use the deep throat techniques for it bruh like (laughs) creating a language period is fucking baffling to me it's crazy now star wars generally gets you know the bigger shine because of the fan base and they got to expand their universe a little bit with the new trilogy and then the sequel trilogy and star trek was kind of lagging behind so i would classify this current run of shows as its renaissance having multiple shows there's never been this many star trek shows on television at the same time at any point in trek's 50 plus year history and the fact that it was able to interconnect with the other shows and then also spawn into the reboot trilogy of films which i'm waiting for star trek 4 to ever come out paramount needs to get on that 
at least at the very least close out that reboot cast stories absolutely and whether or not by the time Picard season three is over we'll see whether or not the next generation has any more adventures to have because they've been teasing it maybe they're just putting out there you know letting the showrunners know that they want to do more or maybe there's something in the works we don't know I will say when comparing to like Star Wars truth be told I personally haven't really watched much Star Wars and I was never super interested but by comparison I would say people are free to like Star Wars of course but piggybacking off of what Al said I don't think Star Wars could inspire the way Star Trek did in terms of interesting people and the actual like science and more grounded reality of how to get to that point in the future in our own futures and space exploration it's fantastical in nature because it's the future that we have yet to see but it also breeds minds to want to make that kind of world a reality not one that's so far-fetched where we couldn't i fully expect that if humanity does get the ability to colonize the stars essentially that we would function in a way that's very similar to starfleet i mean even what was it that trump said about creating a space force space where force. He, <laughs> where his thing was almost basically saying like to boldly go <laughs> and not to mention the logo was almost a delta symbol it, you know i'm just in there saying that star trek is mainly about portraying a hopeful future whereas star wars has always come off as being kind of preachy and almost biblical to uh you know talking about the force and being one with it and going to the light and the dark side it, it just seems like the characters there don't appeal to me and i've watched all the movies i haven't watched the bad batch i haven't watched the mandalorian i haven't watched any of the side shows on disney plus i've watched all of the main movies and the prequel movies of rogue one and solo and none of those characters do i relate to let alone do i even like like that and i find like star trek almost every show has something or some character that i like and it just seems like the stories that they tell are far more interesting than what star wars puts out there i will say that star trek's a good it's good at creating open-mindedness about what the future holds and in a kind of metaphorical but also in a very realistic way if we were to encounter species or people different than ourselves to not immediately respond with hostility but try to understand learn and be respectful it's just very open-minded and i feel like that's a very positive message for like building a future to be eventually hopefully the utopia. utopia and can i be 100 and put it all out there star wars fans have more toxic members than star trek fans yeah honestly <laughs> like they hate on the actors and the people in the universe the only person we sat there and collectively hated on was janeway and whether or not the decision to separate um Tuvok and Neelix back into individual people as opposed to the combined person that they were with that um the teleporter accident yeah Kes had to make the decision that she couldn't make right 
of like those are the only times I can remember where people were hating on outside of Will Wheaton. Shut up, Will. <laughs> like, shut up, Will. You know, where we and get in the Will Wheaton get in the bad end of the shit still. But he got his redemption too. Right. Yeah, he's more of a liked character or an accepted character because he was kind of like the runt of the litter because he was this really young character among space traveling adults of authority all around him right he was like that you know that doughy eyed but let's be real he was one of the only teens there you never really saw anyone else interacting with other teens and stuff like that let alone for him to sit there and have like a social circle he was stuck with the adults for my entry i'm going to look at one of the games from from software if you're not familiar with from software they are the developers who made Dark Souls, Elden Ring, and Bloodborne. All of these games, well, they made Sekiro too, of course. And they created a style of game that is known for difficulty and deep lore. These games are usually referred to as Soulsborne, any game that's made in this style. So I would definitely consider that a franchise of sorts where they have a very distinct visual and technical feel to them and their storytelling is always really in-depth and kind of like hidden from you but not so hidden where you're not able to see it so i'm going to talk about bloodborne specifically we are born of the blood made men by the blood undone by the blood feared the old blood the lore of bloodborne is steeped in gothic visuals and lovecraftian cosmic horror but at the forefront of this story are the themes of blood and conception. You start the story as an outsider who's come seeking the miraculous blood of the healing church. Blood that can cure any ailment, but there is a cost. Upon arrival, you receive a blood transfusion and are given a task. You've arrived on the night of the hunt, and thus you must become a hunter. Your prey, those who've been driven to madness, in beasthood by the very blood meant to cure them. As a hunter, you're caught between the waking world and the hunter's dream, a subspace where hunters find themselves should they fall in battle. Within the dream, you are overseen by German, the first hunter, in his workshop. He, in a sentient doll, helped to arm you and transform blood echoes from enemies into strength. Until you are successfully able to curve the scourge of beasts. You are bound to the dream and to the night of the hunt. If you wish to escape the moon, you must see your task done. Throughout the game, as you discover new areas, play beasts, and bear witness to the various horrors, you gain insight. And if you gain enough, the veil will begin to lift, and you will be able to see previously invisible amygdala, which are giant, multi-limbed creatures grasping the sides of buildings and lumbering over the streets you walk. You're also able to see more enemies hiding in corners that were previously invisible to you. The game also becomes more difficult as you now know more of the truth of the blood and the hunt. Enemies become more vicious, with some wanting to suck the insight right out of your skull. Quite literally. Kinky. <laughs> as you progress through the game, you'll find a great lake Hiding within the reflection of the moon, within the lake, is a great one. 
an ancient eldritch race of ungodly beings, beings who have almost entirely transcended this plane of existence. This great one is known as Rom. Rom, who in many item descriptions is described as being one who hides all manner of rituals. Once you slay Rom, the visage of a pale bride, weeping with her wrists in chains and her womb bloodied, appears before you. Once you approach her, the blood moon descends, overbearing and nearly crushes you. Once back on the streets of Yarnum, the cries of an infant can be heard throughout the map. The cries lead you to a school of Mensis, bordering on the realm of nightmare. The school of Mensis is where a twisted scholar sacrificed his entire student body to initiate a ritual in hopes of making contact with the old gods. The school is a source of a never-ending nightmare. In your quest to end it, you encounter a large wraith-like enemy known as Mergo's Wet Nurse. Brandishing several blades, she protects an unseen child. Once defeated, you hear the baby's cries are silenced with a sickening squelch. When you return to the hunter's dream, the workshop is in flames. German waits for you in a field behind a previously locked gate where he offers you a way out of the dream through beheading. Should you accept, you awake in the glory of a rising sun, the night of the hunt, over. Should you refuse, you must fight the elder hunter to the death. Once he is defeated, the true puppeteer of the dream reveals themselves. Descending from the sky, a great one known only as the moon presence can embrace and trap you into becoming the new keeper of the dream. If throughout the game, you are able to collect three umbilical cords found from female NPCs who much slaughter in order to collect them, you must then consume them to unlock a new ending where you are able to resist the influence of the moon presence and you yourself are reborn as an infant great one. Bloodborne has a very deep and dark story where a lot of the dialogue you get from NPCs and item descriptions further elaborate on the people of Yarnum, the scholars and the church who has this healing blood derived from great ones. Blood which can enlighten you or as one description says, cause the stillbirth of your mind and drive you mad or turn you into a monster. You weren't monster enough by killing the wet nurse and causing a baby to be squished. Oh, this wet nurse? You should look her up. Murgo's wet nurse is such a sick enemy design. It's like a black cloth draped over an invisible being with like literally six arms and knives in each hand. And the whole time you can hear crying going on. No shit. Rom is a vacuous spider. Yeah. I am a spider fan. Why are you gonna kill a spider for? Like all of the enemy designs, they're all very tentacly and definitely Lovecraft and freaky. There's a lot of body horror in this too. I feel like Guillermo del Toro fucking design shit going on here too. Oh yeah, like aesthetically the game's pretty fucking cool and then like the lore backing it up. I mean, that's what drew me to it is the gothic architecture and the setting for Bloodborne when I saw the trailer all those years back when it was a PlayStation launch game. But this motherfucker said eating women's umbilical cords. Fuck no to all of that. Sorry. <laughs> it's also believed that due to the descent of the Blood Moon, a formless old one known as Formless Odin 
impregnated at least two or three women during this. So you find like one literally hunched over on a table in birthing position after she's tortured and forcibly transformed people using tainted experimental blood to turn them into creatures. That sounds very Zeusy. Yeah. But all of these like ancient great ones are obsessed with birth in some way. The moon presence if you are enslaved basically kind of embraces you like a child and then you become subservient to it and also the moon presence is just such a kind of daunting name like it's not even a name it is the presence of the moon right it's like somebody's more of a, a construct how's he gonna fight a construct in the cutscene where it literally descends from the sky with like a red moon behind it it's pretty neat there are runes that you can inscribe into your mind that are visual representations of these great ones. Their speech is incomprehensible to us. That one person was able to transcribe them into a physical form. The bride is supposed to be a queen who was offered by a extinct race that used to live underneath the city of Yarnum in catacombs, offered as kind of a sacrificial bride to the great ones to be impregnated and then have her child ripped from her. Stories involving the gods end up being terrible, terrible fucking stories. You have one character who's a scholar. He tried to transcend his mind by lining the inside of his brain with eyes. Like, literal eyes. Get the fuck out of here. This is crazy, though. I've never There's been, not- like, a, 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 a bloodborne, right, you say? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been a, a bloodborne fan, but I know it's an absolutely beautiful game. But this is a psychotic ass story. I would suggest, like, someone who could definitely cover a lot of the interesting stuff and describe it all in great detail and, like, help understand and make the story sound more sensible than I'm probably making it would be a YouTuber, Vadi Vidya. He has tons of really cool lore videos. There are also vampire-like beings called Vilebloods who imbibe a forbidden blood. Their queen, Annalise, requests of you blood dregs which you obtain by slaying other hunters. And when you obtain them, the icon for the blood dregs seems to have little images that kind of look like sperm in them. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of like birth, menstruation, eyes. There's lots of fluids. Lots of fluids, <laughs> lots of bit. visceral. Yes, yeah. One of the attacks where you stab and basically rip out your weapon from inside an enemy and you get covered in blood is called a visceral attack and it can heal you. You can get special blood from a prostitute, and if you take her blood too much with a church bitch there, she'll go crazy and try to murder her, because she doesn't like that you're taking the prostitute's blood over her pure blood. People go drunk on blood, with many of the townsfolk in like a stupor, being basically consumed by bloodlust, trying to hunch you down like you're one of the monsters, many of them referring to you when you pass by as a beast themselves, like their vision has been so skewed. The game even says that Yarnum, they produce more blood than alcohol, as the former is more intoxicating. It's so alluring, not only for, like, the idea of being closer to these higher beings, one who they keep in the basement of the church to continue producing this blood. Wait, so they bleed their own god? One that was left behind. Some descended, or ascended, rather. One was left behind. There's DLC where you can find what they call the Orphan of Kos, the Orphan of a Great One, where it attacks you with its placenta. Mm, it sounds horrible. It is, but it's also kind of really fascinating. Like, all the boss designs are really atrocious, but also kind of really cool. 
They're well thought out. Yeah. It's compelling. Yeah. Like I said, I'm definitely probably not doing it justice. If you've never seen it, I would look at gameplay-wise, not a lot is told to you about, right? But there's a lot of strong visual shit and item descriptions and NPC dialogue and hidden areas where you can access more information. Okay. And definitely look at other people's lore videos where they can cover a lot more than I can mention here because there's just like so many things. There's different factions. There's church hunters which go around killing people executioner style, trying to cure the scourge of beasts by killing anyone who they even remotely suspect is infected. Damn. That sounds similar to the church going around and accusing people of being witches. I mean, but there, here there are witches, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just sitting there thinking, the Inquisition <laughs> so. But yeah, and just like thematically, there's lots of like pretty themes. <clears throat> And, like, just lots of really cool quotes and good wording for things. The Vile Blood Queen refers to as a moon-scented hunter, and I like just the way that sounds. You know, just lots of thematically, conceptually pretty things. It sounds romantic. Yeah, it's definitely romantic. It's all up my alley, and I love it. But, yeah, for, like, how deep the lore goes and how aesthetically a lot of things are built in to match that lore... Like, the school, which the scholar who's obsessed with eyes, there's jars of eyes everywhere, literally. Mm. So that's my well-thought-out universe. Nice. All right. Am I the asshole? Now your guys' options are friend, sister, studying. Studying? All right. Am I the asshole for studying anatomy on the train? I, 21 male, am a veterinary medicine student. I spend a significant amount of time commuting each week between my flat and the university campus, and I've recently been trying to use this time more productively. Some exams are coming up for me soon, so I've been using my time to look through my notes, e.g. on pathology, while I'm on the train. I mentioned offhand to my flatmate Kate, 20 female, not a vet med student, that I was feeling less stressed about my exam after starting to do this, but she looked stunned and asked me if I'd really been studying stuff with all the horrible pictures in a public setting. She said it was incredibly selfish of me to be studying that kind of thing, all in quotations, when someone on the seat next to me or behind me might be able to see my laptop screen. I said that people looking over my shoulder wasn't really my fault, but she said that even a glimpse of something with that amount of blood in it might make people really uncomfortable or sick. I feel a bit guilty about it and now am considering stopping, but part of me still thinks I wasn't doing anything wrong and that Kate is overreacting, which is why I'm posting here. Some additional information might help. The train ride is about 50 to 60 minutes long one way, and so 100 to 120 minutes in total, and generally busy enough that 50 to 75% of the seats are taken. The notes I'm studying contain images of organs, both in situ and out, I'm not sure what that phrase is, both in and outside of the body, along with pictures of common pathological effects on both a whole body, i.e. identifiable as a whole animal, and organs down to a specific level. Kate is quite squeamish about biology and I generally avoid talking about my course with her because I understand that people have a different level of tolerance for these kinds of things. So am I the asshole? Nobody should be looking at your fucking laptop and if they do, that's on them for what they fucking see. Mind your own business. At the same time, I feel like right where you just said it there towards the end of the thing, it's like she's the one that has the aversion to what her friend looks at if studying for it if it's part of a career if it's a morbid curiosity or a fascination or something that's her friend's business she doesn't need to look in that direction especially if you know 
for example, if you have a friend who loves watching gory horror movies and that's not your thing, you know not to go to the movies with that person to see that particular movie. Why would you look and waste the time to say that you shouldn't be looking at those things when you never had to look in that direction to begin with? Facts. I agree. So it's really rude to say that's selfish of him when it's literally for his career. Like, it's his job, literally. It's not just a morbid curiosity. It's literally for his livelihood. And if he's going to spend that time and be tested, because, you know, tests, especially for, like, medical examinations and prepping for getting your degree is stressful. It's a lot of work. And you definitely, as a person, usually don't have a lot of time to manage that anyway. So if you're going to be on a train for, like, an hour or so, you might as well study during it. I don't understand why you wouldn't. That's only going to better prepare yourself. And it's honestly selfish of her to not consider how he's helping himself by studying with whatever time he has. He literally said that it was helping him out, helping him be calmer, knowing that he can go over the extra material at his at this leisurely point in time. Also, he's not playing loud music and he's not playing loud music through headphones that might disturb the person next to them. What the fuck was you supposed to do if he was just looking out on his phone too? The person was leaned over and in fucking person's business enough to look at what I had on my screen. Mind your fucking business. It, it, it costs you nothing to mind your own goddamn business and it costs me to nothing for me to mind my own business just like i am right now on my laptop minding my own business as should you i don't think this person's the asshole at all i think yeah, like you um, mentioned before that the friend's sensibilities they're trying to exude that onto someone else and listen you can't please everybody nor is it your obligation to you are sitting there doing this for yourself like you had mentioned feline that's it I do not have to sit there and worry about everybody around me's sensibilities. I'm not empathetic enough for that. It's not my place to do it. And I'm pretty sh damn well sure that that random fucking stranger who I'm supposed to be accommodating for, this mythical fucking person I'm supposed to be accommodating for, isn't going to be accommodating me in some shit. So why the fuck yeah. am I considering a non-existent human being right now? And also, I just, as a person, kind of get irked by anyone who tries to make up things to be offended by for other people like she's getting bothered for people that so far if no one said anything to him on the train they clearly don't care why is she making up some scenario where he is imposing on these strangers on the train right literally do less you don't you wasted both of our energies with this bullshit you could have just kept all this shit to yourself because it won't make no never mind and it'll make it ain't gonna fucking change nothing and your opinion is wrong. <laughs> you can have an yeah. opinion, but it can also be wrong. And in this fucking situation is wrong. Like, it just makes no sense. Keep doing you. Get your degree. Get your fucking career going. Get your money. Right. OP, keep studying on that train. Fuck everybody else. They ain't going to be there to help you with your studies for your veterinary medicine degree. They ain't there for you. They ain't going to be helping you study. They going to be getting, you know, snacks while you work hard. Fuck them. Keep doing you. In this corner of the universe, Funko is set to toss up to $36 million worth of unsold Funko Pop stock into a landfill. They say storing the unsold inventory costs them more to store them, so they'll just write them off and bury them. Give them that's out. Dumb. Yeah, give them out, first off. But I'll also, that's really stupid because in a situation where we're at environmentally, that's a terrible fucking idea. I'll take some obscure-ass fucking random... Uh, Funko Pops. Honestly, when you said Funko, my old ass automatically thought Funko Land. I'm like, oh, they coming back out? It's terrible. <laughs>
it should be like illegal for companies to create new landfills of these materials that aren't going to break down anytime soon. That's irresponsible. And I hope someone's going to hold them accountable because one, again, if you're not making any money off of them anyway, just give them away. So at least they're not sitting in a hole in the ground when we're kind of in an environmental crisis. And they can write it off for charity and get the money off of it. You can claim, even if you have receipts, you can sit there and claim a ton of money on your taxes if you do for charity or do donations or give it out donating stuff even um products so to speak i know when i walked into newberry comics seeing all those walls of funkos i would be thinking that i remember how crazy it was people would just buy up funko pops whenever it was a brand new one being announced and all that and you know pre-orders being sold out and whatnot but seeing the walls of them now makes me think that they're not selling nearly as much of these as they used to and part of that stock is you know exponentially larger being thrown into the ground and then buried could be the beanie baby syndrome it's irresponsible of them to do and it's irresponsible for them not to better understand the demand in order to adjust stock to be more reasonable so you're not throwing out however many dozens of fucking pops which is now what they'll do after they write these ones off not every fandom deserves to have funkos yeah you want to be all inclusive but you can't put 50,000 for an obscure TV show that not a lot of people are going to have the fan base for. Or like the ones that come in various different recolors for no particular reason. Yeah, the gold version. They just look like they half-assed something. Like they were going to do something that had uh, an underlay of gold on it. I decided, fuck it, we'll just send it as is instead of finish painting it off. I saw a neon-colored line of horror pops. Yeah, I've seen like a neon Nightmare Before Christmas Jack and like uh, zero. I've seen a Michael Myers and a Pennywise. Do they glow in the dark at least? I don't think so. I don't so. believe they, they do. might be There's like, a few that, that do go in the dark, but I don't know about those ones particularly. That they're probably UV reactive just because they were like neon in color, but... I feel like the, the, the best gimmick you could go for would be glow in the dark type shits because people love that shit. They definitely have glow in the dark pops. I just don't believe that line of neon ones account for that yeah but that's what i'm saying they shouldn't do like neon shit like that or like single color the all red you know whatever's nobody gives a fuck about it you're not going to sell that many what you should have done was made them fucking black like you'd like you'd mentioned possibly black like reactive or just glow in the dark that shit will be dope i think the only neon colored one that would have made sense that they should have just stuck with was the NES Friday the 13th Jason figure. The purple body and green mask. Oogie Boogie should be cool in the dark. Right, see? Oogie Boogie would be dope in the dark with the right spots glowing. Even even glow in the dark stuff for black light react, they, they absorb from the black light more so they, they stay glowy longer. HBO Max's Penguin series has started filming and they added Clancy Brown to the show as Salvatore Mamoroni. You can next see him in John Wick 4 as a harbinger. Rumor says that MGM may be planning a new take on Poltergeist. They're looking to make bank on the horror boom currently going on, but it may be complicated due to the fact that Steven Spielberg's involvement in having the rights to the original 1982 film, so he may have to be involved in some capacity. He did want to make the film originally back in 1982, but filming on E.T. had kept him from being able to do so, and instead he collaborated with Toby Hooper to get it made and to date there's been four films and four seasons of poltergeist the legacy tv series 
Marvel launches their new 20th Century Studios banner for comics based on the former Fox franchises, Alien and Predator and Planet of the Apes. The branding debuts in April. Under the last leadership, a new Batman Beyond animated film was in the works. It was set to be their answer to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Currently, it is unclear if this project is or isn't in active development. This made for the second Batman Beyond project following the now-canceled live-action version. Bruce Campbell says he and Sam Raimi are hoping to develop an animated installment of The Evil Dead as they are actively pursuing it to be made. But he says that it's all based on whether or not Sam Raimi will have the time, seeing as he has a lot on his plate. I love me some Bruce Campbell, but I don't need to see him all the time. And, and I granted, live that 15 minutes and those two movies or three movies till you till the fucking wheels fall off. But the video game was kind of pulling it for me. And like, even his, I was I was funny with his cameo in um Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, exactly. So you know what I was talking about. Start in the Doctor Strange, and I was cool with it because it's very, very classic him. But I think he can do more. He has a wide range. He was in Xena Warrior Princess for God's sakes. He can do better shit. He has range. He can do emotional shit. But people will not let him come out of this box. But I'm sure he's living and enjoying the box. No problem. But like, bro, there's he, there's more to him, and I want to see more from him. Recently, I mentioned in a prior episode that the Roll Doll books are going to be edited for more inclusive and proper language. Yeah. However, updates have said that the U.S. as well as I think one other uh, country besides the U.S. are going to leave the books as they are. Good. This follows the James Bond books being edited now for the same situations. Again, I said my piece for the most part in the previous episode where we discussed this, but I feel like it's okay for media of a different time with different mentalities to be left as they are because it's okay for us to know that things were different then and to know better that it's no longer okay to say things a certain way or marginalize certain groups. But it's also very important to know that we came from that time and we got better. There's nothing wrong with growing people. Not to mention just like it's always funny trying to mess with what a author or artist creator's original intentions were. Even if you don't agree with all of them, that is how they made their work to be and that's ideally how it should be represented we can just look at it from a better perspective and understand what is and is not okay anymore what is that phrase where if you don't know history you're doomed to repeat it yeah exactly you have to sit there and know what it is and know that you is a person from a newer time it was a, I want to say enlightened mind, and I'm not going to sit there and say we're ephemerally enlightened, but clearly we know better than to sit there and smoke cigarettes and fucking drink wine and shit while we're pregnant We know than they did in the 50s. We know better than to, you know, sit there and smack a girl's ass that you're working with because the culture said it was cool. You know, we know better than to do shit like that. We But, but we have to know that that sexual harassment shit, that that fucked up shit happened. We have to know because then we grow from it and like, yo, who the fuck were we as a people back then? I'm glad we're pushing forward and taking steps. It's what evolution is. It's what's meant to be. And you have to learn and know what happened back then to be able to grow from it and learn and understand these are the mistakes we made and we can't make them again. 
what led us to make those mistakes so we could know not to follow down that path. That wraps it up for the season two finale. In the meantime, please join us for our new show, Are You Afraid of the Topic, which will debut in April and will air one show a month each month for the next seven months as we count down to season three of Fandoms, Culture, and Perhaps a Few Murders in November. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. If you like the show, please follow us on your preferred platform. You can leave us questions and comments or shoot us an email at fandomsculturemurder at gmail.com. Until next season, it's been Spade. It's been Feline. And it's Al. Good night, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Goodbye. See you later. Catch you on the flip side.